You know, how do you feel when you come to the end of something um, that has really meant a lot to you? You know, like graduating from a school that you just really loved. Maybe it was uh, leaving a job that you just uh, were so grateful to have that job, and yet you know it's time for you to uh, move on. You may be excited about the next step that's coming in your journey, but you know you're going to miss what it is that you're leaving. And I really feel that way today, because today is our last message in the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, This is the 30th message over the last uh, seven or eight months, and um, it's been a special time for me as I've studied this book and preached this book and um, been able to share what God has put in my heart from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. You know, he wrote it from a, a true pastor's heart. He sees the trouble in the church, he sees problems in the church, and he loves this church, he loves these people so much, and he's, he's not going to mince any words, uh, he's going to explain sufficiently what it is that he wants to say to put them back on the right track. He wants to encourage their faith. He wants them to believe in the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter what trials come their way, because trials have a tendency to pull us away and make us look into ourselves, make us look for answers and fixes and things. And uh, he over and over is, is telling them and he's showing them from a pastor's heart how trials can turn into triumphs and victories. And we need not look at the trials that come our way in such a defeating debilitating way. He tells them things like this in the book. He says, God's grace is always sufficient. He tells them, your new creations in Jesus, the old is gone. That Jesus has made them the very righteousness of God, chapter 5. That in them is the surpassing power of God. And they're little jars of clay, he calls them. (laughs) Chapter 4. That they are the sweet fragrance of Christ to the world. That they will forever be conformed to the image of Christ from glory to glory. Chapter 3. He tells them that in this world you will be afflicted but never crushed. Confused but never in despair. Even persecuted but never forgotten. Struck down but never destroyed. Jesus raises us from the trials of this life. He leads us in triumph, he says, and manifests through us, the church, the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him. And I say, praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ. The last paragraph or so of the book book reads like this, starting in chapter 13, verse 7. Now we pray to God that you do no wrong, Not that we ourselves may appear approved, but that you may do what is right, even though we may appear unapproved. For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. This we also pray for, that you be made complete. For this reason I am writing these things while absent, so that when present I need not use severity, in accordance with the authority which the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brethren, rejoice. 
Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Sincerely, Paul. (laughs) You know, he prays for the church here, it says. And as you read through the whole book, you'll see the, the revelation of Paul's pastor's heart for his people. He, he just uh, wants so much for this church, all churches, to be what God wants it to be. He realized what's at stake. It's the very simplicity of the gospel, uh, unfiltered, unchanged, passed from generation to generation. And the Corinthians had been dealing with this infiltration of others who had tried to... S- lead them astray from Paul's teaching to mix Judaism with the new doctrine of grace. And uh, Paul just wants to, he's writing them. If you read 1 Corinthians, you'll see the problems that he addresses there. 2 Corinthians, he's coming again and he's saying, I don't want to use severity when I visit. In other words, I don't want to be harsh with you. I'd like to send this letter and get you to straighten these things out before I come because I want it to be nice when I come. (laughs) There's so much at stake, and we can learn a lot about from these about the church from these closing passages here. The first thing that I see about the the, the, the Paul about Paul's heart for the church is this: he wants the church to be healthy. Don't you want to go to a healthy church? Sometimes I have to do that to see. I don't know if it's all of this real estate I have up here or what, but. Uh, you see, Paul places this health. He says, I don't want you to do wrong. I want you to do right. He says, even if it costs me, even if my reputation before you or my vindication before you is somewhat compromised, I just want you to be healthy. I want you to display the gospel of Christ in a healthy way. He says in verse 7, even if it appears to you that we are unapproved or rejected, or the word even means reprobate, even if we come across Paul the Apostle and his entourage, even if we are put down, it doesn't matter. As long as you, church, are healthy, be a healthy witness in your community. (laughs) Have an allegiance to the simplicity of the gospel of God's grace through Jesus Christ. And I read that and I think to myself, what makes a healthy church? What makes a church healthy? Is this church healthy? It's a question that I uh, often pray over. I think our leaders, we often ponder this. It's the crux of the matter. If, if, if you were here, to, if I had passed out a sheet of paper here today and I said, I want you to make a list of the characteristics of a healthy church, think in your mind, what things would you put on that list? What would be included? This is what a healthy church looks like. Well, I just want you to know, for me, the top of the list would have to be this. The centrality of Jesus Christ to everything we do in the church and everything that we are in the church. 
that's kind of a startling yet uh, simple phrase. Jesus is the center of what we do. Jesus is the center of our worship. He's the center of our ministry. But the implications of the statement are far-reaching because if ministry is the center of our church, then we're unhealthy. If ingenuity and cutting-edge technology or doing things the way everybody else is doing it today and all of that, if all of that is the center, we're unhealthy. In fact, if anything is the center of the ministry besides Jesus Christ, the church is unhealthy. He says, Paul writes to the Ephesians over in 4.15 of Ephesians, he says, but speaking the truth in love, we, the church, are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. There's this visual that he's giving that we all together, pointing towards Christ, we are all encouraging one another towards Christ, the way that we love one another, the way that we teach the word, the way that we organize ministry. Everything is pointing each other to him. Now, let me ask you a question. Can a church be unhealthy, not have Jesus at the center, and still grow numerically? Sure. Attracting a crowd is not the sign of a healthy church. Amen? But being small is also not the sign of a healthy church. In other words, size is not about health. It's about Jesus. We can have healthy big churches. We can have healthy small churches. I have a tendency to believe that healthy things do grow, right? They'll grow numerically sometimes. They'll grow spiritually, yes. They'll grow in their love for one another. But healthy things are growing organisms. Something else on the list of healthy church characteristics would have to be this. That church really loves one another. If there is division or strife or quarreling, well, the the church is is unhealthy. If there's contention, if there's people pulling for those opinions, if there's pulling this and pulling that, and it's unhealthy discourse and division, Paul is addressing that. He addressed it in chapter 12. He knew this church was unhealthy, and he said he was afraid that when I come to visit, I'm going to find you quarreling, I'm going to find you jealous and angry and selfish and gossiping, and he says disorderly behavior. Jesus said this to his disciples in John 13. He says, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another, even as I have loved you. That you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. I don't think we have a full appreciation what that those verses would have meant to the disciples of that day because it is a complete shift in paradigm for these Jews. 
was, it was no longer, our connection is no longer going to be because we follow the rules and we keep the law and our behavior is all unified and we have similar ideas, we have similar doctrines and teachings and theologies. He is saying that the world can see all of that, they can hear all of that and still not know that you really belong to me. He's saying the only way people will recognize true followers of Christ is by this, 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 this visible love they have for one another. He also says there in the passage that the church is to be truthful. Verse 8, he says, For we can do nothing against the truth, but only for the truth. David Garland, in his commentary on this passage, he writes this. He says, The truth is expressed back in the fourth verse. Christ was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power we live in him. That's the truth of the gospel. He says, This truth cannot be changed, even if it may be unpalatable to the Corinthians' taste. He says, Paul will not tamper with the truth to make things easier for himself or easier for his congregations. He cannot change his spots as a weak apostle and will not change his mode of working or preaching to please them. He also cannot adjust the truth to excuse the Corinthians' sins and errors. This parenthetical statement, which is verse 8, makes clear that true apostles are controlled by the truth and not preoccupied with themselves. Jesus said, what about truth? It sets people free. We ought not be afraid of the truth. He says in, the, in Garland's passage there, even if it's unpalatable to us, even if it's difficult, even if it makes things harder, even if it convicts us, because truth is the pathway to life, it's the pathway to freedom, and it's a person and his name is Jesus, and if Paul had wanted to be popular, he would have not written some of the things that he wrote in this letter. But he has this undying faithfulness to the gospel of Christ. And it stands as a model for us today. Another thing we learn is that the church is to be mended. Mended. You know, he's talking about his desire for the church as a pastor would, and he uses this phrase twice in this passage. He says, I pray that you would be made complete. It's a very interesting uh, word that he uses, because uh, in, in, in Greek the word is catartesis. Catartesis. And it's not the normal word for complete, or whole, or without defect. That word is teleros. Catartasis means to be made adequate for a task. But you know, it also can be, it has this whole idea of being mended or restored or made ready for use. It's, it's back in Matthew 4, uh, uh, it's used in, in a way of mending the nets for the fishermen. Getting them ready, sewing them back together so now they are useful. And he's telling the Corinthian church, you need mending. I'm praying that you'll be, you'll be made whole again. You'll be restored. You'll be made complete. 
You can't be used. You can't have effect in the, in the community in which you uh, exist if you are tattered and torn. They needed to come to terms with the truth. They needed to say to the false teachers, no, I'm not going to go down that road. I'm going to stay with the apostle who gave us the faith, who explained to us the faith of Jesus Christ. You know what they really needed to do? They needed to repent. Amen. They needed to repent. You know, for some reason, God has uh, been leading me and speaking to me about this word lately. Repentance. Now, maybe everybody else here has that word all figured out. You got it all figured out? I've been doing a lot of study on just this one word, repentance. What is it? I've always known it means to turn. It means to quit walking one direction, walk another direction. Uh, What does it mean for the Christian? I'm just going to give you some interesting things that I've learned about repentance. Is that all right? Did you know that the word repentance, repent, repenting, repented, any form of the word, never does appear one time in the Gospel of John? And yet in the Gospel of John, we had probably some of the most, uh, arguably the most uh, definitive salvation scriptures. John 3.16. Don't you find that a little bit interesting? You see, the emphasis in John about salvation is all about belief. Whoever believes will have eternal life. You go over to Ephesians 2.8, and it says that we are saved by grace through faith. Again, no mention of repentance. But isn't repentance awfully important? And if so, how? I think back to Ryan's uh, message last week. He was preaching from Revelation 2, the seven churches, where the church of Ephesus had left their first love, Jesus. They'd been doing a lot of good things. They'd been great in ministry, and I had the church just really humming on ministry, but they'd kind of forgotten about Jesus. And Jesus, in writing this letter through Revelation to John, what does he tell them to do? church. He tells them to repent. He tells the church to repent. He says, if, if, you, if you don't repent, there's going to be a removal of the lampstand. That light of the world, that, that shining light into your community that uh, gave the gospel to your community, it's just going to be... You can't continue without Christ and have a dynamic influence for the gospel in your community. (laughs) And so church, you need to repent. What did Jonah tell the Ninevites to do? He says, you need to repent or you're going to be destroyed. Needless to say, living in sin... Refusing to repent can be detrimental to one's future. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) 
to repent is to stop dead in your tracks, realize the error of your ways, wake up, come clean, turn back to God. No rationalizing why you are doing what you're doing. No excuses for living the way you're living. No more dependence on the things that our society today depends on. Medicine. Coping things. Because over in Galatians 6, it says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also what? Reap. And people find themselves in destructive patterns sometimes. And uh, even Christians, they, they begin to neglect their relationship with the Lord and they begin to neglect Him. And they, be, they fall into old patterns that is no longer them, but they still fall back into those old patterns and. They slowly find themselves in a place of uh, going to far off land. And the only answer I can find biblically is <laughs> to repent. But repentance is not just turning away. And I think this is where so many people make the huge mistake. Repentance is not just turning away, it is turning to. You turn away from the rebelliousness, no matter what it is, and you turn into the life of Jesus. I, so many people, myself included, have tried to turn away from their sin by refusing to go to those bad places anymore. You ever done this? I, I get in trouble when I'm there, so I'm not going to go there anymore. And I'm not going to have those relationships with those bad people who lead me astray. And, oh, I'm going to start doing things more constructively in my life. I'm getting up every morning, one hour with God, every morning. I'm going to make sure I don't miss church, even if it is daylight savings time. I'm getting up. That is not repentance, folks. That is turning away from bad behavior to try to make good behavior fix your situation. And we're never called to repent unto good behavior. We're called to repent unto the Lord Jesus Christ. The beautiful story of the prodigal son in Luke 15 tells about all the trouble the, guy, the, the son got into when he wanted to live life on his terms. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to handle my money the way I want to handle my money. I'm going to handle my time the way I want to handle my time. And it got him in a mess. He didn't sit there, though, and wallow in his depression and his sadness or seek a man's answers to his problems to try to help him cope with the desperate situation he was in. What did he do? <laughs> In verse 17 of Luke 15, it says, I love this, this phrase, he came to his senses. He came to his senses, and he returned home to his father. You think about that. To, to live in such a way that I know is... Uh, 
tearing me away from him. It's not only dangerous, it's just, well, to use the, the passage from the 17th verse of Luke 15, it's insane. It's living in insanity. It's, it's like taking the choice of the prodigal, saying, you know, I kind of prefer the slop of the pigs to the mansion of my father. You see how insane that sounds? And yet people all the time, I want to do life my way, and it continues to be frustrating, and continues not to work out, continues to not be put together, and, but I'm all in with this. And he keeps calling. <laughs> I wish I could stand before you and say that this whole thing of living on my own is that I just don't have any personal uh, illustrations for you today. <laughs> I wish I could say that. But I have plenty. There have been so many times in my life where I thought I could handle something or I could fix this problem or I could conquer a particular sin. You ever felt that way? I can do this. I wanted to realize I, I just, I can't. And I'm here to tell you that turning away from my futile flesh efforts and not to a pattern of improved behavior, but turning away from that into the very life of Christ has always set me free. It's the only thing that ever has. And Paul is calling the Corinthian church, stop believing the lies of these people. Repent of that. Come back into the fold of the life of Christ and the simplicity of the gospel of his grace. Another thing we learn is that the, uh, Paul's heart for the church is to be unified. He says to be like-minded, live in peace. I remember going to a pastor's conference once where this phrase stuck with me. The phrase was this, there's nothing like the local church when the local church is working right. <laughs> I like that. There's nothing like the local church when the local church is working right. I mean, it's exhilarating to be part of a team of like-minded servants of the Lord making a difference for Christ in the world. And when we live in a community of mutual edification, we have this deep love for one another, we're quick to forgive, we're void of gossip, we're being like-minded towards the vision of the gospel, there's just nothing like it. And Jesus designed the church that way, that's his intentions for the church. He raises up his people to be the hope of the world. The only place where people can find this peace he talks about. Live in peace, he says. You're not going to find it out there. There's nothing like the local church when the local church is working right. And finally, the last thing we learn from the passage is that the church is to be affectionate. Verse 12 says to greet one another with what? A holy kiss. Uh-huh. I realize that uh, 
It's probably not our culture uh, to greet one another with a kiss on the cheek, is it? Uh, I tell you what, if you would like to experience this, sign up for the Mexico mission trip. <laughs> they greet each other with a kiss in Tanzania? Absolutely. Absolutely. You think we ought to start the practice here? <laughs> Look at them. I don't know. But I think the meaning of the passage is that there is to be an affection within the church that takes on a visible flavor. It might be a hug, an embrace. It can be handshakes, fist pumps, high fives. I don't know. <laughs> but the meaning is that there's these visible expressions of the church. We love one another. And we're not embarrassed to say that we love one another, to show that we love one another. And it's not just touch. We encourage one another with our words. We express affection in the way that we talk to one another. We accept one another. We love without condition, realizing we want to be loved without condition. And uh, we submit to one another. We respect one another. We honor one another. And the world, they come in and they see this and they just go, wow. It's so genuine. I've never seen anything like that. I don't get that down at the club. I don't get that down at the office. I don't get that in my neighborhood. You know, when I look at this list, what does it say to us? Are we healthy with this sincere desire for Christ at the center of everything that we do, this love for one another that is visibly expressed, that we share the truth with people, and we're like-minded, living in peace? And Are we willing to be mended when those times come? In his closing of the, of the book, Paul's calling the Corinthians to really just humble themselves and, and turn and come and return to the simplicity of the grace of Christ. And I think he calls the church today to the same. Don't lose sight of the simplicity. And maybe on a personal level today, I mean, if you were just really brutally honest, your spiritual life is lacking and... Uh, your relationship with Christ is distant. You might even be, and I've been here before, you're struggling and you really can't put your finger on it. <laughs> you just find that praying is so methodical and rote, it seems like, or even difficult. And uh, there's, there's these old patterns that, they just come and raise their head again and these old sin patterns. And uh, Sometimes we just get spiritually numb. Where is he? The good news is that you are not forsaken and you are not forgotten. The good news is that he pursues us, that he is always working. He is always about gathering up the brokenness and he's always about creating this, this, this goodness, this beautiful picture. 
I believe that because I believe in him. So if you find yourself in a way you're just a little lost or a little distant or a little lethargic or a little numb or a little confused, hurt, this is your day. <laughs> because Christ finds those things, these people. He pursues the lost. He causes blindness to see. So the invitation is to him, to his grace. I want you to bow your heads with me. Father, you know that there are those uh, moments in each person's life and in the life of a church where the word of God just uh, can speak truth into a situation and uh, bring about the effectual change that you desire for us and uh, Father, as I study this passage and I, I, I study this whole book, I see this, this constant call to Christ that you change us from glory to glory, the, the, the recognition of who we are in you, that we're new creations in you, that we, we are not who we used to be, so why are we living like we used to live? <laughs> And Father, I just pray for the person that might be here today that has been trying to correct the waywardness with, without you. <laughs> with just creating a new different kind of lifestyle or a new pattern or a new routine. Uh, they might have some measured success for a while, but they're going to eventually... It's just not sufficient. So today, Father, as we sing about your amazing grace, I just, uh, I just pray that there would be those here today who see where they are through your eyes. And say, Lord, I don't want to live this way. I don't want to be this way. I, I don't want to let my future be like my past. I want to put a marker in the sand today and say, Lord, I'm coming to you. No behavior fixes anymore. Relational fix. A relational love relation with you, Father, is what I seek today. Thank you, Father, for your presence here. 